Chapter twenty five of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C.M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter twenty five A Modern Martyr. The Elsie Chilton of a year ago would have shuddered at the bare suggestion of herself being summoned to a forlorn tenement house in a back street of the city to stand by a dying bed. She had especially shrunk from the thought and presence of death and had seen a face where he had set his seal but once or twice in her life. During these last months she had come to look upon the going out of this life into another with different feelings. Christ was to her no longer far off and impalpable, but a real friend and redeemer who had delivered her from the bondage of the fear of death, so far as herself was concerned. And yet she reflected as she drew near the house that it was a grand and solemn mystery— this departure of a soul from a body, and if there should be suffering connected with it, how could she bear to see a little child in agony? Despite a great effort at self-control, she was pale and trembling when she entered the room. But there was no need for fear here. Like a drooping white lily, the child lay back among her pillows, sweetly breathing her life out, as quietly as a flower passes away. The time for suffering was past and the little face had taken on that look of sweet content which the parting soul sometimes leaves behind when the veil has been lifted, and a glimpse of the glory to come has dawned upon it. If pity were needed, it was for the father, the strong man who knelt by the foot of the bed, his whole form shaking with repressed sobs and groans. Can any agony be greater than that of remorse? Teacher has come, said Nellie's mother. The brown eyes opened then, and rested with a glad look on the one she had so longed for. "'Jesus has come for me,' the faint little voice whispered as Elsie bent over her. "'I love you, teacher.' And the eyes closed again. There came a long, quivering breath, and they thought she was gone, but she opened wide her eyes once more, searching for her father, and her voice rang out clear and strong, as if new strength had been given for the last sweet mission— "'Papa, take me,' she said. Sitting down on the bed, he lifted her head in his arms. She smiled up into his face, murmuring, "'Dear Papa,' then lying back, as if satisfied, whispering, "'Sing, Jesus, lover,' then with stillness for a moment, broken only by sounds of weeping. Then Elsie's voice, at first choked by sobs, but gaining the mastery of itself, went out in the sweet, clear notes of the old love-song which had so comforted God's saints during the last hundred years. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Elsie paused after the first verse, but the eyes unclosed again and cast a pleading look, and the low, sweet music went on through the whole hymn. With the last notes, little Nellie looked about on them all, smiled a good-bye, and was gone her spirit risen to that eternity so far away, we are apt to think, and yet quite so near to each of us. The hymn was not one the singer would have chosen, and she thought the choice a strange one for a child, but she did not know that it was the lullaby song which had fallen first on Nellie's baby ears, and that from that hearing it all through the years she loved it better even than her favorite Sabbath school hymns. And then the spirit, who put it into Nellie's heart to ask for it is wise. It was not a mere happening. 
This was the hymn her father and mother had sung together before she could remember. It was when George Forbes was a sober, industrious man who feared God and kept the commandments, when he loved his home and sat and sang by the fireside with his wife. The wife had sung it when her heart was breaking. How her soul had gone up to God again and again in low, sad song in the words, Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. The singing was rarely sweet, the consummation of true art, each word being articulated perfectly, and it accomplished that whereunto it was sent, comforted the sad mother, and brought deep conviction to the sinning father. It did more for George Forbes. With that precious head in his arms, and the hymn sacred to such dear memories sounding in his ears, he sent up a swift prayer of contrition and faith, which sprang into his heart in the very words of the hymn, Vile and full of sin I am. It was heard, and he was saved because the prayer was a real one, and because it is written, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The few words of prayer that Mr. Mason spoke seemed to recognize what had gone on in the heart of the man, and to bear him in strong faith to God. While he pleaded for comfort and strength and guidance to be bestowed upon those who needed God's loving thought in their sorrow, Elsie, joining her heart in the petitions, could rise for the moment above her own griefs, and rejoice that into the midst of this sorrow and trouble it was possible for the peace of heaven to descend. Mr. Mason and Elsie were silent as they went on their way, each busy with thoughts stirred by the scene they had just witnessed. Elsie, brought face to face with the sad tragedy again, experienced the same rush of indignant feeling when she remembered the cause of it all, and a deep blush of shame dyed her cheek at the thought that her own father was not free from guilt in the matter, and that the man whom she had promised to marry had signed a petition asking that the poison which crazed the brain of this wretched father might continue to tempt him. Alec Palmer was again brought into unfavorable contrast with this other one, who went about battling the wrong and comforting the sorrowing. If Alec had been in the habit of prayer, could he have gone so far wrong? But her father prayed in the family and social meeting, and yet he, too, seemed to be on the wrong side of this question. "'Life is so very different from what I used to suppose,' she said, speaking suddenly out of her thoughts. "'The world is filled with sorrow and wrongdoing.' Mr. Mason cast a pitying glance at the troubled face. Perhaps he ought not to have brought to her any added burden. He had noticed during the last weeks that the carefree expression was gone from her, and an anxious look seemed to have taken its place. He believed that women should be brave and helpful in the conflicts of life, yet somehow he felt an instinctive desire to shield this one from its rough places. They were so new to her, and she seemed so guileless, so grieved and surprised at sin and inconsistency. You are forgetting, Miss Chilton, he said, smiling, that with most of us the bright days far outnumber the dark ones, and you do not remember the multitude who are engaged in right-doing. Yes, it sounds like an ungrateful speech, I know, but it has all come to me suddenly. I think I must have been asleep these years. Mr. Mason, I am so perplexed. How do you account for it that good men see things so differently? How can they pray thy kingdom come 
and then do not do every possible thing to put sin out of the land. How can they vote for license and rent buildings for liquor selling? Are they to be called hypocrites? You've asked me some hard questions. At least, they would be if there were not an explanation. I do not think we would be justified in denouncing as hypocrites all men who hold what we consider erroneous views on certain questions. Some are blinded. We must not ignore the fact that Satan is very busy in this world. I have not a doubt but that he planned the liquor traffic from beginning to end, that it is one of the chief means on which he depends to deceive and destroy souls. What could be more satanic than to deliberately, for money, set up to sell an article which always harms the one who takes it? What more cunning device could be invented than to put into the hearts of Christians to tamper and dally with this sin instead of laying an axe to the root of the tree? I grow impatient at the manner in which we deal with it, at the slow progress we make. If all Christians were of one heart and one voice in this question, we could put away the evil. It is indeed humiliating that it is they who block the wheels. When some good men bestir themselves on this subject, that arch-deceiver is at hand, and he works largely through politicians. How he must laugh for very glee to see God's people helping to regulate sin, licensing it, using its revenues to build almshouses, inebriate asylums, and prisons. How he mocks when they rejoice that the saloons in their town are cut down from fifty to ten, counting it a long step in progress. Satan can send souls to eternal ruin through one saloon, and when even Christian ministers, who see other things so clearly, have the veil over their eyes too, when some of them in high places drink wine themselves, and declare to young men, beer is no more injurious than tea, is he not satisfied, exultant, especially when the thing goes on and on through the generations? But the end will come. It does not require much of a prophet to foresee that a crisis is not ages off. There will be a fierce conflict. Perhaps it will come in our day, Miss Chilton. We may be martyrs for the truth's sake. It has come. I am one, she said, with a tremble in her voice. I... And then she closed her lips. Her father's name should never be mentioned in connection with blame, and that other trouble, she could not speak of that. Can I serve you in any way? Mr. Mason asked, with a touch of reverence in tone and manner which Elsie noticed. Alec Palmer was authority in all matters pertaining to good form, yet his manner lacked that indefinable something which people of fine perceptions recognize and appreciate, and there was about him a trace of condescension, even to his superiors. He had grown up believing that people and things were created to minister to his enjoyment and his convenience. He reverenced nobody so much as himself. "'Yes,' she said, after a moment's silence, trying to steady her voice. "'You can. I will say in confidence to you that I am in great perplexity and sorrow, partly on account of this subject, and I wish you would pray for me and for two of my friends who are blinded in the way you speak of.' "'I will,' he said heartily, "'and will, beside, do your bidding in any way in which you will trust me. But do not be cast down, my friend. Remember,' he says, "'he shall deliver thee in six troubles. Yea, in seven there shall be no evil touch thee.' Seven in the scriptures, you know, stands for completeness. That covers all troubles. And he is able. I never knew what the verse meant before. Thank you. I will try to remember, Elsie said, as she bade him good night at her own door. 
she went in with the thought in her mind that mr mason always lifted her up out of self and made her stronger she needed all comforting suggestions for a storm awaited her her father was more angry than she had ever seen him and her stepmother did not as usual try to mollify him and shield elsie in order to make the evening pass pleasantly she herself too was much displeased when mr chilton was angry he was always sternly quiet for a time his daughter knew as soon as she saw his white, set face that there was fresh cause for trouble. It was a pleasant, home-like room to which she came. The grate glowed brightly, the lamp was softly shaded, and easy chairs stood invitingly about the fire. Such a pleasant room, a passing beggar girl sighed to herself as she caught a glimpse of the warmth and brightness through the parted curtains. And such a pretty girl! Oh, if I was her! Then she took up her basket and trudged on never dreaming that in that room dark passions dimmed the brightness and the one she had envied carried a heavy heart is it possible that you have returned mrs chilton said in icy tones what you mean by such conduct passes my comprehension here alec has been waiting for you a long time and has gone away deeply offended it seems he sent you a note that he had returned and that you might expect him this afternoon or evening behold when he comes, he finds you gone out with Mr. Mason. Explanations are in order, I should say. Elsie was not naturally meek, but she was striving to grow in that grace, and in the second before she answered, remembered, He is able, and sent a swift prayer for help to control her speech. I had not time to write a note, she said. There was need for great haste. The little girl was dying, but I left word with Jean where I had gone. Did she not tell you? since when did you deem it your duty to hold yourself in readiness to go at a minute's warning to any beggar's house who should happen to demand your presence this must not go on mr chilton we shall have all sorts of vermin introduced into the house as well as malignant diseases i was never in favour of her taking a class in that mission school you see what it has come to mamma pardon me you are mistaken the house where i went was very clean though they are poor and there was no contagious disease. The little girl died from the effects of an injury. I was obliged to go. She wanted me. She was that dear little Nellie whom I loved so much. It seems to me that in the new role you have adopted, you have consulted everybody's wishes but your father's. It was Mr. Chilton's voice now, cold and hard. If I remember aright, I commanded you not to go to that place again. Commanded? I'm twenty years old, Papa. There was all the pride and haughtiness of the father visible in the daughter's face now. It was but for an instant, though. She remembered her high calling and the fifth commandment. The proud curves went out of her mouth and her head dropped. Papa, forgive me. I should not have said that. But did you not know it was not necessary to command me? I understood you. I was not to make a practice of going there, and I have not been since— I thought you would not object if I had an escort, and in such a case. I have loved to carry out your wishes, and I always shall, unless, unless they are contrary to my convictions of right. Hear that, said Mr. Chilton. What impertinence! As if I would counsel you to do wrong. It is true I had no occasion to complain of you until you became overmuch righteous. As it is, you are growing perfectly insufferable. Now we will have an end to such nonsense once for all. 
As long as you are in my house, you will obey me, whether you are twenty or forty years old. Here are some commands. You are to separate yourself from that society of ranting women who, under cover of temperance work, are clamoring for the ballot and other unwomanly follies. You will give up your class in that mission school. There are plenty of proper persons to engage in teaching ragamuffins. Let them hire poor women to do it. There is money enough. And you are to stop trifling with Mr. Palmer. A flirt is a most despicable character. You have amused yourself with Mason long enough. No more nonsense of that sort. He is another fanatic. I presume he is responsible for some of your newly-fledged opinions. I warn you that Alec Palmer is in no mood to be trifled with. When a girl succeeds in making a man like him jealous, it will not be well for her. If by your folly you lose him utterly and bring upon yourself and us the disgrace of a broken engagement after it has been made public, I will not answer for the consequences. I wish you to write him a humble apology and smooth matters out between you. See to it that it goes to him tonight. If you are too young and foolish to manage your love affairs, they must be managed for you. Elsie tried to speak, to vindicate herself from such charges, but she could not. She felt as if she were turned to stone. She arose with a white face and went slowly out of the room. She will come to her senses and accept the situation, her father said, when she was out of hearing. She always did so when she was cornered, but I had to be straight up and down with her. I must own, however, that this is an entirely new development. It does not run in the Chilton blood to be fickle. And so this father went on misjudging his child, not understanding her motives or actions in the least. End of chapter 25